we're going to invite Brother Matt to come on up and uh, just looking forward to what the Lord has for us through your ministry. Thank you, sir. case, uh, the members of Bangkok City Baptist Church, uh, church I hope to tell you more about in the second hour, uh, they gathered uh, just a few hours ago in the middle of, of Bangkok, and I would encourage you to, to pray for them, um, simply because in Thailand right now, there are uh, mass protests going on. Uh, they recently had a, <coughs> a, 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 an election, and the results of that election have been ignored, uh, and so people have been pouring into the streets protesting. And I posted a, a video on my social media a week ago of people protesting. And in that video, you can actually see the building where our church meets. Um, so you can just pray for, for Bangkok. You can pray for Thailand. Pray for political stability and for leaders to do what is right. I look forward to telling you more about the people there in our next hour. For now, I want to turn our attention to God's Word. You can uh, turn to the letter of 3 John, which is the letter that we're going to look at this morning. And I, I want to start by telling you about uh, a missionary that has had an impact on my life. Without a doubt, the missionary story that has had the greatest impact on my life is that of John G. Payton, uh, the Scottish Presbyterian who took the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands in the middle to late 1800s. Now, Payton tells his own startling story of of going to the islands and devoting his life to the difficult task of seeing people converted to faith in Jesus uh, and then establishing a, a church there. It was a task filled with hardships starting before he even left Scotland. I just want you to listen as we begin this morning to this excerpt written by Peyton about the difficulty of saying goodbye to his father. And as you listen to this excerpt, ju just remember that this was before FaceTime, this was before emails, this was before phones, and this was even before planes. So this is a man who's setting off, and it's not clear whether he'll ever be back again. This is what John Payton says. He says, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I left him gazing after me. Waving my hat and goodbye, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him, and just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. 
Well, John Payton landed on the island of Tana in the South Pacific with his new wife, Mary, in November of 1858. Fraught with dangers from the start, the island was filled with cannibals, so people who, who ate other people. And three months after they arise, uh, arrived at the island, Mary gave birth to a son, but soon after that, both Mary and the baby died from tropical fever. And Peyton had to bury his wife and child, and then he had to spend the night on their graves just to protect them from being eaten by the local cannibals. Of course, most of us aren't facing such extreme challenges as that. But I think all of us will agree that life, for Christians in particular, really for all people, can be difficult. And some people wonder, why should we go to all the trouble? I mean, is, is it really worth it? I mean, can't, can't we just keep our belief in God private? Why, why go to all the trouble of, you know, obeying the Bible's commands in our daily life and being involved in a church and going out and telling other people about Jesus? Well, here's how one person answers that question. This person says, there are two basic answers for why you might go to all the trouble. Depending on whether you're really a believer, you go through the trouble either for God and his gospel or for yourself. In the first case, real truth and love show themselves as you give yourself to others. You want everyone around you to know the good news about Jesus. But in the second case, your life is simply a show fueled by ambition and directed by self-interest. Well, we're going to see both of these motivations show up in this letter of 3 John, the letter that I want us to, to look at this morning. Uh, it's near the end of your Bible, so I do want you to turn there. I'm going to actually read the whole letter, even though this morning I want to focus specifically on verses 5 to 10. We're going to see these motivations that we just talked about, about why we might go through all the trouble. We're going to see them show up in these verses. Let me read the entire letter of 3 John for us. The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was overjoyed when brothers came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brothers and sisters, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may prove to be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, <clears throat> who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with malicious words and not satisfied with this he himself does not receive the brothers either and he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church beloved do not imitate what is evil but what is good the one who does what is good is of god the one who does what is evil has not seen god demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself <clears throat> and we testify too and you know that our own testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I do not want to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. 
the friends greet you, greet the friends by name. On the heart of this letter, in verses 5 <coughs> to 10, <coughs> John presents us with two kinds of church members. We see here Gaius, and then we see Diotrephes. And these two individuals present us with two patterns for life in the church, two ways of being a church member. So within the church, you often find those who spend their lives for the gospel. And then you also find those who spend their lives on themselves. So just note from the beginning of this sermon, both kinds of people are often found in the church. Both profess to be Christians. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to examine ourselves to see which kinds of church members we are, which kind of church members we're going to be. So our outline this morning, very simple. Uh, first, we're going to spend time considering those who spend their lives for the gospel. And then second, we're going to spend time considering those who spend their lives on themselves. We'll look at those who spend their lives for the gospel, and then we'll consider those who spend their lives on themselves. Let's Consider first the example of Gaius, who spent his life for the gospel. We see his example in verses 5 to 7. And I want us to consider his example together. This is a man who, who spends his life for the gospel. He lives out his faith. Look at what John says about him there in verse 5. He says, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brothers and sisters, and especially when they are strangers. Gaius is faithful in what he does. And what is he doing? In verse 6, these strangers have testified to your love before the church. So Gaius loves these strangers. I want to spend a few moments considering who Gaius loves, why he loves them, and, and how he loves them. So first, who does Gaius love here? Well, verse 5, they're called strangers, but they're strangers who are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are fellow Christians. And this is all that Gaius needs to know about these strangers in order to practically love them. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ turns strangers into family. You know, much of the world is, is characterized by difference and division. Countries have borders. Governments have parties. Communities have families and bloodlines. And then, of course, there are the haves and the have-nots. There's the rich and the poor. There are various ethnicities. And then there are friends and strangers. Sometimes a treaty or a truce can, can blur those dividing lines a little bit. And sometimes a, a friend can become closer than a brother or sister. But only Jesus can make strangers into family. Regardless of the many differences that we may have in this room, we all share at least this one thing in common. We are sinners against the good God who created us, and therefore, we are his enemies. And it's this estrangement from him that also causes all the, the feuds and the divisions between us. And yet, in love and grace, God has acted to save us by stepping into the world as a man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He, he lived a life without sin, and, and yet he died the death that sinners deserve. He died on the cross in order to pay the punishment that our sins deserve. And then he rose from the dead so that now all those who turn from their sin and trust in him can become sons and daughters of God. 
We, we who trust in Jesus are forgiven of our sins and we become his children. We become children of God. But that's not all. We're sons and daughters because God has adopted us into his family. He has created a new family in Jesus Christ so that regardless of what divided us before, he now draws us together as brothers and sisters sealed by the blood of Jesus. So we may not share physical kinship, but we do share a bond that's even stronger than that. We share a spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood. And this is what Gaius knows. And so he welcomes strangers as brothers and sisters in Christ because he knows that they're part of the family of God. So why does Gaius love these fellow Christians? Well, there are a couple of motivations in these verses. Look, look again at verse 7. It says, for they went out for the sake of the name. The name, of course, here refers to Jesus. Uh, the same expression is found in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when the apostles rejoice because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So Gaius loves these brothers and sisters because they had the right motivation, the same motivation that he and the apostles had. They were moved by the gospel. This motivation is the reason why these brothers and sisters leave the comforts of their home to share Jesus with others. It's, it's why John Payton became a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. Remember the guy that I talked about in my introduction. You know, years before he landed on the island, uh, two other missionaries were killed and eaten by the cannibals only minutes after going on shore. And so it wasn't without good reason that one elderly man... Uh, a man named Mr. Dixon, tried to dissuade Peyton from going uh, to the New Hebrides Islands. And he, he tells him, if you go, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And I want you to listen to Peyton's response because you're going to get something of his motivation here. He says, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and you will soon be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see there that he went out for the sake of the name. This gospel is, is why the apostles were willing to suffer as they went out proclaiming the gospel. And it's why Gaius was willing to love these brothers and sisters in Christ. We, too, must be motivated and moved by the, by the gospel. As one person says, that which is not for the sake of the gospel can be set aside. Our lives must be devoted to that which furthers the gospel and only that which furthers the gospel. You know, it is this proper motivation that helps us get up on Sunday mornings after a busy, exhausting week come and come here ready not to be served, not to simply receive, but to serve. I wonder if that's how you think of, of Sunday mornings, as an opportunity to serve fellow Christians for the glory of Jesus' name. You know, one of the, the best ways to serve others on Sundays, I, I suspect Pastor Ed would say the same thing, is to intentionally use the time before and after the service to love those who come, to have intentional conversations, to have meaningful, important conversations, asking people how they're doing spiritually, asking people how you can pray for them, and even stopping right there, praying with them in that moment. 
Of course, this gospel motivation must carry us through the rest of the week, too, as we have opportunities to love and serve and help others, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you're accustomed to believing that we earn our way into God's favor or into heaven by good works or by making merit, well, maybe this Christian motivation to serve the Lord simply for the sake of Jesus' name might surprise you. See, because for Christians, we don't serve or work or do any good deed in order to make merit before God. We, we don't serve in order to earn our way into heaven, in order to earn some kind of relationship or status with the Lord. Instead, we believe that, that as humans, we're way too sinful to earn our way into heaven. We believe that our salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, who, who paid the penalty Paid the, he died as payment for our sin. And, and since he rose from the dead and still lives, we now receive acceptance from God by placing our faith in him. And so we're now freed up to serve him out of a heart of thankfulness. Also that he is shown to be the great God that he is. We're not serving to earn anything. We're serving to express our thankfulness to the Lord. And so this morning, if you'd like to get off the endless cycle of trying to earn your way into heaven, all you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Well, John continues with another motivation for Gaius's love there in verse 8. John writes, therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may prove to be fellow workers with the truth. John here gives another motivation for loving fellow Christians and so that we may be fellow workers, so that we may work together for the truth. In John's letters, that phrase, the truth, is shorthand for the gospel, the message that though we are sinners against God, we can find salvation in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. John sees it as a good thing that Christians work together for this truth. See, apparently more can be done for the truth when Christians work together rather than apart. Now, this may surprise some of you. Uh, if you're at all familiar with some of the divisions that characterize Christianity, right? There are different denominations and churches, too, teach different, sometimes contradictory things. Sadly, sometimes churches even split, and it's not always clear whether they're splitting over matters of truth or matters of personality. And if you spend any time online, you may be tempted to think that Christians argue with one another quite a bit. Well, John's letter reminds us that sometimes Jesus is an object of controversy. And John has no problems causing strife for the name of Jesus so long as it is for the name of Jesus. But he also demonstrates in this letter a profound desire for Christians to work together, even commending Gaius for loving strangers simply because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, one way we can walk this balance between loving Christians simply because they are Christians. And yet at the same time, standing up for the truth is by learning what has often been called theological triage. 
I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase or not. It's kind of a fancy term, but it's a concept that was made famous by Albert Moeller. So the example for this is if you go to a hospital, you'll notice that the receptionists in an emergency room have to make quick evaluations about the urgency of different medical conditions, uh, which patients need to be rushed into surgery, and which patients can wait a while before they're examined. Well, this discipline is called triage, and it's something that we can apply to the Christian life. All of God's truth is important, but some truth is more critical than others. So first-level doctrines include those matters that are most central and essential to the Christian faith. So those would include the doctrines of the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, justification by faith, the authority of Scripture, and even what is and is not sin. If you get those things wrong, you get Jesus wrong. You get the gospel wrong. Denying these doctrines is a denial of Christianity itself. And so if somebody comes to you denying doctrines like this, these are not the kinds of people you want to work together with because they don't have the truth. But then there are those second-level doctrines. And these are those that Christians disagree on even as they create significant boundaries between believers. So these issues most often show up uh, in denominational differences such as church government and baptism and, and some aspects of what the Bible teaches about men and women. So I know here at Hope Community, like me, uh, you all baptize only those who are Christians because you believe that the New Covenant community is only for believers. We don't baptize infants here. Similarly, similarly, you teach that only qualified men can be pastors. That's what I believe too. And However, while we might divide into different denominations or, or churches on these second-tier issues, and while discussions on these issues may even become heated, we must not think that one's positions on these issues places somebody outside of Christianity. Nor do we necessarily think that people are being unfaithful. And of course, there are third order issues. We may disagree on these matters and yet maintain close fellowship even within the same church. So how Christians think about the return of Christ often falls into this category. I bring up theological triage because John commends working together with other Christians for the truth. And I too want to commend Hope Community to work together with other Christians, even those you have significant disagreements with on second and third level issues. As a church, you should uphold your statement of faith because you believe it summarizes what the Bible teaches. But you should also stand ready to embrace all those who are motivated by Jesus and his gospel as brothers and sisters in Christ so that you may work together for the truth and honor the name of Jesus. And how are we to do that? How are we to love others? How do we see Gaius loving others here? Well, John, again, commends Gaius' example here. He, he demonstrates a very practical love. Look again at verses 6 to 8. He says, They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may prove to be fellow workers with the truth. Notice that John says in verse 8, that we ought to support these people. When we see a word like ought in the Bible, we've got to pay attention to that. 
God's word is telling us something that we should do. And here, God's word is saying that we need to support these people. We need to show hospitality to these people. God's word often calls God's people to hospitality. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, share with the Lord's people uh, who are in need. Practice hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 tells us not to forget to show hospitality to strangers. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why is there this emphasis in the New Testament on hospitality, on supporting people like this? Well, maybe it's because of what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 40 to 42. He says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. If anyone gives even a cup of water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. In other words, if we love Jesus, we will love his people. We will love other Christians. And we will show hospitality to them. You know, what a joy it is for me as a supported uh, missionary of this church to get to, to see you from time to time. Uh, I'm encouraged that Hope Community supports us and, and prays for us and desires to know what the Lord is, is doing in Bangkok. And really, the, the primary application of these verses is to show hospitality and support missionaries when they pass through your area. And I'm grateful for the generosity of, of this congregation. But a secondary application of these verses is to demonstrate a loving hospitality towards all Christians, towards all of those who are motivated by the name of Jesus, towards all brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to support such people, John writes. I want to speak directly to the men in the room for a second. For you who are husbands, fathers, the men in the room. I want to particularly encourage you to consider the ought of verse 8. Because this exhortation to show hospitality, I want you to notice, this exhortation to show hospitality is not directed to wives, mothers, women, but to all of us. As a spiritual leader of your home, you should lead your family in hospitality and even Make your home a picture of hospitality and love, a, a place where love and truth go together, where holiness and, and mercy are both practiced, where there is authority but also affection, and they're on display. See, such a, a picture led by Christian men provides, I think, a, a powerful witness to the Lord. This is a verse that is written to all Christians. I want to encourage the men in the room to particularly think about how to practice it in their own homes. And then church, as we show hospitality and support those who go out for the name, we'll want to remember to do it in a manner that honors God, as verse 6 says. It is a privilege to spend your life for the gospel. And you don't have to be a missionary to spend your life for the gospel. This letter is not written to missionaries. It's written to the church. 3 John is written to encourage normal, faithful church members on how they can involve themselves in the work of the gospel. So you share the gospel with those you meet, you show hospitality, and you serve other Christians in a manner that honors God. Something you do generously, avoiding all kinds of stinginess 
You should be generous with your time and, and the way that you interact with other people. Uh, I was struck recently by an, uh, the example of a man. Uh, he was recently profiled in Christianity Today. Uh, but he's a missionary. He's been a missionary in Thailand for 60 years. And one of his disciples, one of the guys that, that he was investing in, commented on this man's ability to focus on and invest in each individual that, that passed through his life. So this is what this man said about this, this, this guy who'd been in Thailand for 60 years. He said, he doesn't have any agenda except you. I wonder if those that you welcome into your home or those that you share a meal with or, or pray for, can they say that about you? Brothers and sisters, let us serve others in a manner that honors God for the sake of Jesus' name. And in this way, the truth will be advanced and we will be co-workers in it. Of course, within a church, there are not only those who spend their lives for the gospel, there are also those who spend their lives on themselves. That's quite simply the reality. I want to take a few minutes, this point's a lot shorter, I want to take a few minutes to consider those who spend their lives on themselves. Look again at verses 9 and 10. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with malicious words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brothers either, and he forbids those who want to do so. And puts them out of the church. What exactly is Diotrephes' problem? You know, not everyone assumes the worst possible motive in Diotrephes. Some wonder if Diotrephes was just a, a young church leader who was tired of the old apostle acting like a bishop over the church, kind of telling them what to do. Others think that he was zealously trying to protect the church. So if you go back and read 2 John, uh, it wasn't only that John's church was sending out good missionaries. There, there were some who went out who became false teachers. And so some people think, well, maybe Diotrephes is just trying to protect the flock. He wanted everyone to, to be careful who they supported until there was proper time to check the theology of those missionaries. And then still others wonder if he has had some kind of falling out with John. Well, whatever's going on, John makes it clear that Diotrephes was living for himself. So first, John says that Diotrephes speaks selfishly. In verse 10, John says that he spreads malicious words. Diotrephes is gossiping. He, he's doing what those who Paul warns us against in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13 do. He's talking nonsense and simply saying things that they ought not to say. This is someone who's a busybody. He's filling his spare time with negative assertions about other saints, other Christians, and it's slander, and it's wrong. Friends, all of us have a very dangerous weapon, and it's found right on our face. The mouth has an incredible ability to destroy. We've all heard the proverb, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we all know that that is not true. We allow our mouths to say things often about other brothers and sisters in Christ without considering whether it would be really useful for building others up. Now, other people encourage us sometimes to you know, speak your truth 
which is often just shorthand for speaking what you feel regardless of what is true. But currently, one of my greatest concerns, it's a concern that I have for members of my church, and maybe it's a concern here as well, is the way in which we're influenced by other Christians that we follow on social media. Their talking points become our talking points. And in the name of truth and zeal, we take on the online personalities in our own community, even though it's very unlikely that the people that we're imitating act the same way in their offline community. And the result is that everyone who talks to us walks away torn down rather than built up. Brothers and sisters, remember that like water rushing out of a dam, once words leave your mouth, you can never scoop them back up. Speak carefully. Tweet carefully. Post carefully. Speak and tweet and post gently. As far as you are able, live peaceably with all, especially with brothers and sisters in Christ who you are going to spend eternity in heaven with. And do be careful about what you say about other brothers and sisters in Christ. Did you notice that even here, John doesn't call Gaius to confront Diotrephes? You see that? He doesn't even tell Gaius to warn others about Diotrephes. There may be a time and a place for that, particularly when those first order theology issues that I mentioned earlier are involved. But at least on this matter, John simply says, I'm going to handle him myself when I get there. Diotrephes doesn't just speak selfishly, he also lives selfishly. John tells us he loves to be first. This selfishness comes out by his refusal to welcome John. He rejects the apostles' authority. Then he goes on to reject other true believers as well. Unlike Gaius, who walks in truth and love, Diotrephes is hostile to those who serve the gospel. And moreover, he even stops those who want to help the gospel workers and he puts them out of the church. It it, kind of seems like Diotrephes is exercising a wrong form of church discipline here. And so we're reminded of the real presence of hurtful people even within the church sometimes. Sometimes churches make decisions that aren't right. How are we to respond in situations when unessential and yet possibly still important decisions are made that are against our own desires. Well, again, notice that John doesn't tell Gaius to forsake the church. He doesn't even tell Gaius to make a big commotion about it when the congreg- with the congregation or, or to go and confront Diotrephes himself. It seems that John is the one who has been sinned against, and so John is the one who's going to take initiative in responding. Gaius, though, is to continue living faithfully for the gospel even within this same church. Maybe the best thing we can do when dealing with difficult situations within the church is to take the advice of somebody that I read in the last couple weeks who just said, when dealing with difficult situations in the church, this person said, I try to concentrate on now and on eternity. I try to forget yesterday and not worry about tomorrow, and instead I concentrate on now and eternity. Such a perspective, I think, allows us to live at peace in difficult church situations and deal with non-essentials with peace and charity. We don't always have to agree with one another. 
Friends, we need to have such a confidence in God's sovereign control, such a confidence in the end that we don't become overly preoccupied with problems, that it affects our ability to speak and act with grace. Sometimes, of course, we have to confront problems. I don't want to deny that. But if we find ourselves always and overly concerned with the problems, we're going to be distracted and hindered from the love and hospitality that God calls us to. So I think an appropriate confidence in eternity, along with theological triage, like what we talked about earlier, and a commitment to love, I think that helps us strike the right balance. And you remember here that John does say that he will confront Diotrephes. And we don't know if Diotrephes listens to John, but we do know that all people ultimately are going to give an account to God. And we can trust him who judges justly. And it's also true that you and I are going to give an account before God one day too. We're going to give an account for the words that we say and the way that we live. Will we be found spending our lives for the gospel, loving and helping others, like Gaius does here? Years ago, uh, I shared the gospel several times with a young Chinese friend. And ultimately, what helped him come to faith in Jesus was, in his words, seeing over and over and over again that Christians are people who put Jesus first, others second, and themselves last. I praise God that my friend saw such wonderful examples of Christians who spend their lives for the gospel. Uh, sadly, Third John reminds us that within the, ch- within the church, there are also people like Diotrephes. He reminds us of both the reality and the danger of those who claim to be Christian, but who place themselves first. Ultimately, Diotrephes' sin is self-centeredness. We can thank God that self-centeredness is not ultimately the way of Jesus. Because Jesus, though he was God, humbled himself by becoming a man, even a servant, and by, by dying on a cross for sinners like us. And we can thank God that my friend saw so many Christians like Gaius who loved and welcomed and served others with such generosity and grace that it ultimately caused him to turn from his sin and trust in Jesus. And I believe that it will be people like Gaius who spur us on in our own love for Christ and who best help others turn to Christ in faith. So friends, may God give us many Gaiuses. May God give us many John Paytons. May we spend our lives for the gospel rather than for ourselves and so see the wonderful fruit of that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that though we were sinners and enemies of you, you loved us with a pursuing, deep, compassionate love. But we pray that that would characterize how we interact with other people as well. That we would demonstrate a love and compassion for others, particularly other brothers and sisters in Christ. Or we pray that Hope Community would be a church that loves strangers simply because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that this would be a church that shows hospitality and so honors you. We pray that this would be a church that, that is motivated 
by the glory of Jesus, by the name of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Got some challenge there for you? Thank you, Matt, for the, the challenge of God's word, bringing it to us. And uh, I know some of you are thinking, loving strangers, well, we love Pastor Ed anyway, so. <laughs> but uh, what a blessing it is to be reminded of these truths and that we would now think about how do we do that? How do we not just hear these words, but do these words? And so much of it depends upon your view of Christ. You see him as doing everything for you and being great. That becomes that motivation, doing things for the sake of his name. So let's stand as we close with this hymn. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And it ends, interesting, with the last verse. When with the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see, will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. And we'll be doing that with countless saints from many different denominations and backgrounds. So I pray that your, your desire will be to make a joyful noise with the greatness of the Redeemer. Come, Holy Redeemer. Let's sing this. Mm -hmm.